So the first 10 verses of Titus chapter 2 are basically verses that instruct the people to whom it is addressed to live differently, to, to do this, to do something differently, to live differently. And the verses that we're looking at tonight are teaching them that they can actually live differently. Because it says, for the grace of God has appeared. So the logic of this passage is, okay, do life differently. Older men do life this way. Older women do life this way. Younger men live differently in this manner. Younger women live differently in this manner. Bond servants, etc., etc. And so basically, there, there is this instruction to live different. There are imperatives to obey. Do this. And then here comes the rationale in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared. And so what we see in Titus 2 is this pairing of what is called imperatives or commands with indicatives which indicate what God has done. All of the imperatives are loaded up front, older men, older women, younger men, bond servants, etc. All of these imperatives. And then the indicatives which indicate what God has done for the grace of God has appeared, etc., etc., which we're looking at tonight. This is the pattern of all truly Christian teaching. In all truly Christian teaching, imperatives are never given baldly, nakedly, alone. Imperatives are always accompanied by indicatives. In truly Christian teaching, preaching, in the scriptures that speak to the nature of the new covenant or the covenant of grace, which we are part of, imperatives are never alone like Nike's instruction, just do it. That's not how it works. It never works that way. Truly Christian teaching, preaching, the Christian scriptures that speak to the new covenant, to the covenant of grace, always pair imperatives with indicatives. Sometimes the order varies. Sometimes the indicatives are given first. This is largely the way that Paul writes. Very, very often, Paul explains, this is who God is. This is what God the Father has done. This is what God the Son has done. This is what God the Spirit has done. This is the benefits of that. This is your inheritance in Christ. This is the love that God now has for you. This is your status now. For example, I'm thinking of the book of Ephesians as a do this. And then he says, now walk in a manner worthy of the calling you've received. And so he's front-loaded the indicatives. And then on the heels of the indicatives come the imperatives. So now this is how you live differently. This is what you should do now. So sometimes the indicatives come first and then the imperatives other times, like in the passage before us in Titus 2, the imperatives come first. Do this. 
Older men, do this. Older women, do this. Younger people, do this. Bond servants, do this. For the grace of God has appeared. See, it's not just, just do it. For the grace of God has appeared. Imperatives and indicatives always go together in truly Christian teaching. Now we are looking tonight particularly at the indicatives section, which indicates what God has done, verses 11 to 14. But we're going to circle back around at the end to this idea of imperatives. But what we see taught in this passage is that the grace of God has appeared and does two things. First of all, the grace of God has appeared. Now, the grace of God is not a substance like like a gas or something that just seeps into the world or something like that. That's not what it means when it says the grace of God has appeared. The grace of God, we might say, is the benevolence of God, which has been given to us in His Son. So God's benevolence has been given to us in the person of His Son. This is what's meant when it says that the grace of God has appeared. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that, as I say, that some substance has oozed up from the ground or distilled down from heaven or something like this. God has, however, given us His benevolence And he's done so in the person of his son, such that we can now say, the grace of God has appeared. And this grace does two things. First, look at verse 11. It says that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Now, sometimes salvation comprises all of the benefits of being in Christ. So sometimes we think of salvation as being justified, that is, being declared righteous, pardoned from our sin, put into right standing with God. And we think of salvation also as the transformation that happens where we are saved from the power of sin over us, and we are changed and we are made new And we think of salvation as salvation from the presence of sin and the environment of sin when Christ returns and makes all things new and gets sin out of this world. Sometimes we think of salvation in that more holistic way as encompassing every aspect of our great salvation. But sometimes salvation refers really to the the first part, justification being Uh, made right with God, reconciled to Him, pardoned for our sin, counted as righteous. This This is what we mean when we say, when did you get saved? Well, technically we could answer, well, I'm presently being saved, and I will be saved one day, so what do you mean? But we, we understand when someone asks us a question like that, when did you get saved? We understand that, that they mean, when were you converted to Christ Jesus? When did you look with the eyes of faith upon Christ Jesus and God imputed the righteousness of Christ to you and counted you as righteous in His sight and pardoned you from your sin and transferred you from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of His glorious Son? 
When did that happen? That's what we sometimes mean when we say, when did you get saved? And that's what salvation means here in verse 11. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And obviously that doesn't mean all with it exception because there are people who are not saved. It just means all different kinds of people. In fact, all the different categories and demographics that are mentioned earlier in Titus chapter 2. Bringing salvation for old men. Bringing salvation for old women. Bringing salvation for young people. Bringing salvation for bond servants. Bringing salvation for masters. Bringing salvation for all different kinds of people. The grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all kinds of people, therefore all kinds of people may be saved. And then it goes on, so that's the first thing that the grace of God does, but then it goes on in this passage to say that the grace of God trains us. Look at verse 12. And it trains us to do no less than nine things that I observe here in this passage. We're not going to look at every one in great detail. But the grace of God trains us. You're going to have to watch my fingers if you want all nine or I'm going to get lost. (laughs) To renounce ungodliness. To renounce worldly passions. To live self-controlled lives. To live upright lives. To live godly lives. To wait for our blessed hope, our God and Savior. To be law-abiding. To be pure. And to be zealous for good works. You see that? The grace of God saves us and the grace of God trains us to do at least nine things which are named here in this passage. As I said, we're not going to look at all nine. My goal is not to give you an exhaustive exposition of this section of Scripture. But as I was reading in my devotions this week and contemplating what I might preach before, just as a one-off sermon before I start this series on the Old Covenant in the New Year. This passage stood out to me as it it does almost every time I read it because it's such a concise little summary of the Christian life. The grace of God saves us in the beginning and the grace of God helps us all the way through. I want to point out a few what's and a few how's before we conclude. The grace of God trains us to renounce what? I want to point out four of the nine. Ungodliness. To renounce ungodliness. Now, we often think of ungodliness as sin. But really, sin is the symptom of ungodliness. Now, ungodliness itself, obviously, is a sin. But let me try to explain what I'm trying to say. Ungodliness in the Bible is really living without reference to God. And that results in idolatry. That results in stealing. That results in adultery. That results in covetousness. That results in Sabbath breaking, etc., etc. Ungodliness is this root which results in a whole bunch of fruit. So when we think of an ungodly person, we tend to think of you know, a thief. We tend to think of an adulterer, etc., etc. But really, when we think of an ungodly person, we should think about someone who is not pious. Somebody who doesn't live with reference to God. That's much more precisely what we mean when we say ungodly. So, 
the grace of God trains us to renounce ungodliness. In other words, the grace of God is going to help us lead godly lives, as it says also in this passage. The grace of God, it goes on to say, that was the first one, here's the second one I'm going to point out. The grace of God trains us to renounce worldly passions. Now this ties in really well with some of the stuff we've been studying in the Gospel of John lately. What are passions? Passions are those emotions or affections that we feel in response to what happens to us. We've been speaking about God's impassibility, that God doesn't have passions. As I said, that doesn't mean that he couldn't care less. It actually means that he couldn't care more. But we are not like God. We are not impassable. We have passions. And our passions rise up. And our passions respond and react to the things that happen to us. Now, that's just part of being human. That's not sinful in and of itself. That's actually part of God's design. Even Christ Jesus, who was without sin, in his human nature, had passions. And there's nothing wrong with that. But Christ Jesus, though he had human passions, he did not have worldly passions. And this is what's in view here. John often uses the world to refer to the ungodly system or culture that lives without reference to God, that couldn't care less what God says, that has its own set of values and priorities which are not shaped by God's, that has its own way of doing things, that is just without reference to God, and in fact is hostile to God. Now, this phrase then, worldly passions, shows us that there is a kind of passion which is more proper to ascribe to, to people who are themselves ungodly, who are part of an ungodly system, an ungodly culture that lives without reference to God. There, there is a whole set of passions that really are fitting descriptors of those people and shouldn't be descriptors of us as Christians. So in other words, there is a type of... There is a way of reacting two things that happen that is typical of worldly people. These are worldly passions. And the grace of God teaches us not to react, not to respond to the things that happen to us in the same manner as the world. This is what is meant by renouncing worldly passions. So, we're not going to live with no reference to God anymore. We're not going to be ungodly. The grace of God is going to train us to renounce ungodliness. But neither are we going to continue to react to the things that happen to us the same way that the world does. The same way that ungodly, unbelieving people do. When things happen, we're still going to have feelings. That's part of being human. We're still going to have emotions and affections that respond to things. But even our emotions and our affections should be shaped by God's Word. 
and should be therefore different, having been affected by the grace of God, our reactions and our emotions, our passions should be different from the passions of unbelievers, of ungodly people. So the grace of God trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. The grace of God trains us to live self-controlled lives. We're not going to be dominated by our passions, of course. Neither are we going to be dominated by our appetites. In Philippians, there's the apt description of those who are enemies of the cross saying that their God is their belly. Obviously, that doesn't mean that they literally, you know, contort themselves in some way that they might bow down before their tummies every morning. It's just a way of speaking that helps us understand that these people are motivated by their appetites. This is not going to be the case with those who have been trained by the grace of God. The grace of God is going to train us to renounce ungodliness. It's going to train us to have different passions so that we don't react and respond the same way as worldly people. And it's going to help us have self-controlled lives so that we're driven not by our passions, which we've already announced, uh, pardon me, which we've already renounced, nor are we going to be driven by our appetites, just doing whatever we feel like we want to, feel like we want to in order to get what we desire. We're going to live a different way as the grace of God trains us. I point those out because I think that we often gloss over words like this and don't properly understand what they mean. And so I thought it would be profitable to just slow down and unpack those ones in particular. He goes on to say that the grace of God trains us to live upright lives, to live godly lives. I think those are relatively self-explanatory, especially in view of what I've already said, so I won't touch on those. The grace of God trains us to wait for our blessed hope, our God and Savior. What are we living for? What is our longing? Not the kind of things that the world longs for. We long for the return of Jesus Christ. We long to see Him face to face. We long for the culmination of God's plan of redemption when all things are made new. This is what we are looking for. This is what we are waiting for. You might say to someone else, uh, unbeliever, what are you waiting for? Retirement. When I don't have to work anymore. When I can take life easy. What are you waiting for, unbeliever? When I can buy a house. When I will have arrived. What are you waiting for? When I can have children and fulfill that dream, that goal. What are you waiting for? And they gave all of these answers. When you ask a Christian, what are you waiting for? To see my Savior. To experience the fullness of salvation. This should be front and center in our hearts and in our minds. The grace of God trains us towards that. What do our lives look like in the meantime while we wait for our blessed hope, our God and Savior? Our lives become increasingly pure because verse 14 tells us that Jesus Christ is purifying for himself a people. We are becoming increasingly zealous for good works. 
we are becoming law-abiding. See, he is redeeming us from all lawlessness. What's the opposite of that? Becoming law-abiding. While we're waiting for our blessed hope, our God and Savior, we are learning to keep God's law and to zealously do so. It's God's law which defines what are good works and what are not good works. And we're becoming zealous for good works. We're becoming zealous then for the works of the law. Do you see what do you see the kind of language that's being used here? I thought that works of the law were bad. For by works of the law no one will be justified in God's sight. I thought I thought the works of the law were bad because doesn't it say in Romans 10 that the people of Israel didn't attain righteousness because they pursued it as if it was by the law? I thought we were to renounce works of the law. I thought we were not to be zealous for doing works of the law. What Paul is instructing here is that, yes, though the law doesn't have any value to us whatsoever in terms of our justification, having been justified by grace through faith, the law helps us know how we ought to live. The law remains for us a rule of life. It remains for us our marching orders. It's what we ought to have done before we were saved. And it's because we didn't do what we ought to have done that there was wrath to begin with and something to be saved from. After we're saved by grace through faith from our lawlessness, it doesn't mean that now the law is not something anymore that we ought to do. It doesn't mean that the law has somehow lost its goodness, has lost its commanding power. It's still relevant to us. And so we still ought to do works of the law. By works of the law, no one will be justified in God's sight. All of our righteousness is as filthy rigs. We can't attain a justifying righteousness by works of the law. Paul teaches that in Romans 10. But it's the same Paul who writes in Romans, or pardon me, in Titus 2, that having been saved by the grace of God, the grace of God now trains us actually to do the works of the law, which we ought to have done all We are to be zealous for good works, zealous to do the works of the law, zealous to obey God's law. This is not legalism. Legalism adds rules where God hasn't given rules and or legalism encourages people to try to be justified by the works of the law. And I'm doing neither one. I'm reminding you, you can't be saved by works of the law. You need the grace of God for that. And I'm not adding to God's rules. I'm simply insisting on God's rules. You actually should obey God and do the things that he commanded in his law. This is not legalism. We shouldn't be afraid of this language. This is the normal Christian life. So the grace of God saves us, and then the grace of God trains us to renounce ungodliness, to renounce worldly passions, to live self-controlled lives, to live upright lives, godly lives, to wait for our blessed hope, our God and Savior, and in the meantime, to be law-abiding, pure, zealous for good works. This is the what the grace of God trains us to do. 
Now, how does the grace of God train us to do this? You're listening and you say, okay, I want to be more zealous to keep God's law. I want to have different passions. I want to have a different reaction and a different response to the things that happen in my life than worldly people do. Yeah, I want to be more godly and live with reference to God. I want to live a more self-controlled life so that I'm not just driven along by my passions and my appetites. You're telling me that the grace of God trains me to do these things. How does the grace of God train me to do these things? Well, this is essentially my life's work to show you week by week from every passage of Scripture how the gospel connects with our lives. So I can't obviously say everything about that here tonight. But let me give you three ways that the grace of God trains us to do these kinds of things. First, the grace of God gives us the psychological freedom to try things that we otherwise wouldn't try. So, ungodliness says, I gotta take care of myself because no one else is taking care of me. Ungodliness says, I gotta look out for number one. Ungodliness says, if somebody insults me, I gotta fly into a fit of rage or become aggressive in order to protect myself. Ungodliness says, if I know that someone is manipulative, um, I can't show any weakness or any humility in front of them, otherwise they're gonna take advantage of me. Ungodliness says all of those kinds of things. These are just examples. Uh, again, I can't give an exhaustive list of all these things. But the grace of God informs us, teaches us, instructs us that we are loved with an everlasting love by the one who numbers and names all the stars in the sky. Apart from whose will, not even a sparrow falls to the ground. And of how much more value are you, Christian, than many sparrows? We are loved and cared for by one who has numbered every hair on our head. One who has decreed the end from the beginning. We are loved by one who is omnipresent, which means that we are never far away from him, so far that his arms can't reach to protect us. And we are reassured that as low as we go, lower still are the everlasting arms, where we read that underneath are the everlasting arms. That's the implication. No matter how low you are, God's arms are lower still. God is going to take care of us. God is going to be with us. Even when we pass through the waters, even when we pass through the fire, the prophet Isaiah says, I will be with you. This is the reassurance that the grace of God lives us, gives us, which frees us then from the psychological fear that might keep us from trying to live 
the way that God instructs us to live. And so the grace of God says, why don't you try it? See if just maybe these promises are true. And we believe in the grace of God, and so we try, and we begin living a new way. We begin renouncing ungodliness. This is one way that the grace of God trains us. It frees us from psychological fear that would otherwise keep us from doing what God wants us to do. The second way that God, God's grace trains us is that it gives us encouragement that it's an actual possibility that we could live differently. If you are given an impossible task, chances are you won't even try it. If I took you to the gym and I load up, I was going to say 400 pounds, but there are one or two in the church that might be able to do 400 pounds. Let me say 700 pounds. I load up 700 pounds on the bench press. And I say, now listen, if you want to get strong, you got to push some serious weight. Go ahead and lift that off the bar. Chances are, you probably won't even try. Because you're going to just take one look and say, there's just no way. And I say, well, try. You say, no, there's literally just no way. I'm not even going to bother. Come on, just try. And you think to yourself of all the ways that it could go wrong. And that you're just going to fail in the end. And maybe you're going to get injured along the way. And you say, no, no, I'm not even going to try. If you don't even think that it's a possibility to live differently, to live the way that God wants you to live, you're not even going to try. You're going to think to yourself, what's the point? And I might get hurt along the way. But the grace of God tells us in passages like this, that it is possible to live differently. Romans 6 would be another one that reads along these lines. In Romans 6, we read that our old self was crucified with Jesus in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. There are passages like this throughout the New Testament that encourage us that it's an actual possibility that we could live differently. That we're not enslaved to sin anymore. That we might walk in newness of life. That we're dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That the grace of God trains us to actually live differently. That's the second way that the grace of God trains us is it, it encourages us that it's an actual possibility so that we're motivated to actually try something which otherwise, apart from the grace of God, would be impossible for us. So the grace of God trains us by giving us psychological freedom from fear, which would otherwise stop us from 
living differently. And the grace of God trains us by encouraging us that it's an actual possibility that we could live differently. And then thirdly, the grace of God trains us to live differently by giving us new affections. When we understand that the grace of God has come to us in Christ Jesus, that it is the benevolence of God given to us in the person of His Son. And we see the love of the Father and we see the self-giving of the Son and we see the concurrence of the Spirit and the anointing of the Holy Spirit upon Christ Jesus as the dove descends from heaven at His baptism symbolizing that anointing. And we read in the Scripture that it's the Spirit who has drawn us to faith and given us the new birth. And we see then the triune God who loves us, cares for us, who has made provision for us in His Gospel. What happens? We love in return. We love because He has first loved us. And we find that that over time as we meditate on the grace of God, we actually love sin less and less. And we want sin less and less and we want Jesus more and more. As we think on the grace of God, as we turn our eyes upon Jesus, what happens? The things of earth grow strangely dim. And so the grace of God trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled lives, upright lives, godly lives. The grace of God trains us to wait for our blessed hope, our God and Savior. The grace of God trains us to be law-abiding, to be pure, to be zealous for good works by giving us new affections for Jesus Christ instead of those old affections or in the place of those old affections that we once had for sin and the world. Now, we're dead to that. We want Jesus. We want holiness. We want righteousness. Where once we resented being under God's law, where once we resented God's claim upon us, we just thought freedom was being free from God's law so that we could do whatever we want. Now we realize that freedom is the ability to walk in God's law. Freedom from sin, freedom from death, freedom from hell. Freedom is found in the way of God's commandments. This is what the psalmist says. And we're, we're freer than we've ever been in relationship to Christ Jesus. And we love Him and we want to please Him. This is the third way that the grace of God trains us to do all these things. It gives us new affections. So yes, the grace of God saves us, but really what's in view tonight, what I really wanted to focus on, which I thought would be helpful for us as a church, is that the grace of God trains us. To do what? The nine things that I listed from this passage, and how? At least three ways. Freeing us from the psychological fear that would otherwise impede us from doing these things. To encourage us that it's actually possible to live differently. And the grace of God gives us new affections. These are at least three ways in which the grace of God trains us to do the nine things that are mentioned in this passage. These are the indicatives of Titus 2. The things that indicate what God has done and how God is at work helping us. I told you in the beginning, we'd circle back around at the end to the imperatives. So... 
since all of this is true, live differently. That's not legalism. Since all of this is true, since this is what the grace of God does for us and is intended to do in us, since all of this is true, do the things that God commands in His Word. The things in the beginning of Titus 2 is the immediate context. You can go and read through and try to apply it to yourself. But really, all of God's commands are in view or are within, or are within the purview of a right response to these indicatives. Where are you not living a godly life? Where is there ungodliness in your life? Where are there worldly passions? Where are you not living a self-controlled life? Where are you not living uprightly in a godly manner? What are you waiting for? Retirement? A home? Children? Or your blessed hope? The appearing of the, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Where are you living in lawlessness? Which laws are you breaking? How does God want to make you more law-abiding and pure? Where does God want to make you zealous for good works? Where are you not presently zealous for good works? Which, which of his laws do you resent and do you find burdensome? That's an area of sanctification in your life. And the grace of God is going to train you to deal with these things. So within that framework of the grace of God, not just do it, hear me clearly, within the framework of that grace of God, by which you have been saved, you are also being trained so now, go and live differently. Now, go and do this. The grace of God doesn't just produce saved people. The grace of God also produces changed people, pure people, holy people, law-keeping people, zealous for good works. May the grace of God have its intended effect in us, that we be not only saved, also change.